you would turn in your Bibles to the little letter to Philemon, and it is on approximately page 1,000 in your pew Bibles. Actually, that's not true. It's exactly on page 1,000 in your pew Bibles. It is 11.15, I'm sorry, 11.45 on the evening of December 31st, and she has been on her feet for one year. She still holds her head high, but she's tired. Her dress is worn, and her shoes are serviceable, but clearly have seen better days, and her feet are sore. She sits on a bench in the train station, waiting for the last train of the last evening of the old year to come into the station, ready to board. And she's also awaiting the arrival of her younger sister, she holds in her lap a cardboard box, what they used to call a band box. And she, of course, is the representation of the year that has just passed in Nathaniel Hawthorne's short story, The Sister Years. And sure enough, as the train pulls into the station, a young woman, a fair maiden who, quote, with, is bedizened with fluttering ribbons, gets off the train. And she descends with eager step to the platform. And she, of course, represents the new year that is about to launch. The two sisters greet each other, and though only one year separates them, the chasm of time and circumstances between them feels like a century. The younger sister is eager to begin her journey, filled with hope and the desire to pass out the flowers in her basket to any and all she would happen to meet. The older sister, by contrast, is eager to rest. Her journey nearly complete. And the younger sister inquires about the contents of the bandbox the older sibling is holding in her lap. And the older sister replies in these words, quote, These are merely a few trifles, which I have picked up in my rambles and am going to deposit in the receptacle of things past and forgotten. We sisterhood of years never really ever carry anything of great value out with us when we go. The tears of widows and other afflicted mortals who have received comfort during the past 12 months are preserved in some dozens of essence bottles, well corked and sealed. Moreover, there is an assortment of many thousand broken promises and other broken wear, all very light and packed into little space. The heaviest articles in my possession are a large parcel of disappointed hopes which a little while ago were buoyant enough to have inflated Mr. Laureate's balloon. Now, if this story seems a bit dark, you can blame Rich Burns for the story. And you knew I was going to do that a bit. This dark little fable ends with the New Year maiden lightly tripping through the city streets, handing out flowers to all of the early risers who cry out to her as she passes, Happy New Year, they say. Yet she perceives that the air in which she walks, though fresh and new and filled with confidence and wonder, is yet tainted even now by the unfolding troubles of the men, women, boys, girls, even babies, that seem to march stride for stride alongside the beauty and the gift of time. All right. 
It's kind of a unique little story. And many of us will stay up late this evening, right? And why do we do that? To ring in the new year. For years I had a, a practice of trying to be outside when the new year rang in. I have no idea why, and I no longer am faithful in that practice. Uh, but it was nice while it lasted. We will reflect on the old year and we'll welcome the new one. I remember well the turn of the century when 1999 became the year 2000. Many of you remember that as well. And our conversations that year circled around what? Y2K. Right? The world was going to come to an end. All because of a, somebody's failure to include four digits when it came to the year. And friends over that night and uh, at about five minutes to midnight I instructed one of my sons to go in the basement and turn off all the electrical circuits <laughs> which which he did with glee and uh, for a few moments at least we ushered in all the promises and the dire consequences that would accompany Y2K and that's how the new century began in our household so knowing that this is a unique day to both reflect and to anticipate, open your Bibles to page 1000, and we're going to be taking a look at what the little letter to Philemon has to tell us about the new year and about the nature of the gospel and the beauty of our Savior. Now, most of you know, I think, the general outlines of this most personal and pointed of Paul's letters. It is, in a nutshell, a plea for mercy for a runaway slave. And there's a lot to commend this letter to us, especially on New Year's Eve. Like us on this unique day, Paul looks back on what has happened in the past and yet points forward to some truly amazing, earth-shattering possibilities. It has another connection to us as well. I was talking to Pete Peterson this morning before the service, and we both acknowledged that we have no idea what this next year holds for us, right? Not only that, we don't have any real idea what were the most significant events in the previous year. We don't know which of those seemingly incidental conversations might be the turning point in the trajectory of a life. And so it was with Paul and Philemon and the slave Onesimus. They did not know what the future held. One day, we all will. But that will be concluded in another time and another place. So let's unpack it together. I'm going to read this letter, breaking, into, breaking it into three sections. The first section, verses 1 through 7, I'm calling the bond of friendship. The second part, verses 8 through 16, I'm calling the mirror of the gospel. And the third part, 17 through 25, I'm calling until we meet again, or perhaps blood brothers. So, before we open the letter, though, I want to give you a little bit of context, historically and geographically. Paul is writing this letter from prison, probably in prison in Rome. And at the conclusion of the book of Acts, he finds himself in a strange spot. He is a prisoner as well as a host. He's allowed to have friends come and go. And if you read the last two chapters of the book of Acts, it's wonderfully presented there. He is allowed, forced actually, to provide for his own sustenance, and he is ever anxious, not for his person, but certainly for the communities of believers he has nurtured like little embers all along the path of his missionary journeys. There are three additional characters in the story beside the Apostle Paul. 
and that may cause you to scratch your head for a moment, but hang with me. There is Philemon, an apparently wealthy Christian in the city of Colossae, which is about 100 miles due east of Ephesus, and there should be a couple of maps. Um, and Colossae was a city of trade and cosmopolitan commerce that was in some decline even before the letter was written. Its fate was sealed when Rome built the Ignatian Way that bypassed the city. And to top it off, the city was damaged by an earthquake in AD 63, probably just a few years after Paul's letter arrived. Then there is the slave, Onesimus, about whom we know and we will learn a few things as we read today. We can infer a few more, but there's large gaps in his life and history that are not available to us. We know this, that he was a slave belonging to Philemon, that he somehow escaped or perhaps absconded, likely while on an errand to Ephesus, that he encountered Paul somewhere along the way, possibly during Paul's stay in Ephesus or perhaps during his two-year imprisonment in Rome. We know that he apparently owes a debt to Philemon, but it's, it's vague and unspecified but that Paul appears in the letter to personally guarantee. We also know that, interestingly, he is tasked by Paul to accompany Tychicus in the delivery of the letters to the Ephesians, the Colossians, and to Philemon. The third character in the story, you may ask, that would be the church that met in Philemon's house. This is more than a personal private letter, it is a letter intended to be, and probably was, read to a larger congregation for their good, and we will soon see why that's important. So let's begin. The Bond of Friendship, verses 1 through 7. I name it that because it's not simply the pro forma standard opening to a letter. Rather, it sets the stage for the relationship between the Apostle Paul and the prisoner Onesimus and Paul's colleague and dear friend Philemon. Begins like this. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the heart's of the saints have been refreshed through you. You know, the thought occurred to me that as Paul sealed these letters to the Ephesians, the Colossians, and the Philemon, and he put them into some sort of receptacle and gave it to Tychicus and sent his entourage off, can you imagine in history a more precious cargo entrusted to an Amazon delivery driver? There are some things to note here. First, you notice that Paul does not refer to himself as an apostle. How does he refer to himself? He's a prisoner. Second, notice that he addresses Philemon 
and two other individuals. Who knows, maybe they were Philemon's wife and son. But note who else is indicated. It's written to the church at Colossae that meets in Philemon's house. Next, notice that Paul is genuinely thankful for his colleague Philemon because even in prison, he, Paul, has had reports of the love that this man has for him and for all the saints. Now, verse 6, this is true confessions time. It's interesting because it reads as if it's scrambled. And it, frankly, it sounds vaguely spiritual, but you've got to really unpack it to figure out what on earth it means. And this is where the NLT translation was very helpful for me. And it goes like this. And I am praying that you, speaking to Philemon, that you will put into action the generosity that comes from your faith as you understand and experience all the good things we have in Christ. Paul is praying for this man that he would harness the unique privilege of generosity, that he would find and see the opportunities in front of him through the lens of his growing understanding and through his own personal experience of the mercies of Christ, mercies that all believers share. It's as if Paul is saying to Philemon, continue to walk the talk, Philemon, this is pretty clearly not a rebuke for his dear friend, but rather an encouragement to press on, to take every thought and every word and every act of service captive for the sake of the call of the gospel. And finally, note in verse 7, Paul is in prison, unable to bring these letters personally. He's in the presence of a guard 24-7, and it is surely with an anxious heart that he seals these letters handing them off. Yet in the midst of this, he finds true comfort. And we might ask, from what source? It's because he knows that the hearts of the saints of God have been and will be refreshed by the kindness and serving heart of his dear friend, Philemon. And a question occurred to me as I was studying this and considered this a, an interesting rabbit trail one might wonder why this personal letter made it into the canon of Scripture. After all, we're given clues that Paul wrote other letters that did not. And this letter seems like such a personal thing and to cover such a personal matter. And don't get me wrong, we're glad to have it, right? But there's a couple of clues that might help us see an unspoken depth of purpose. First, in the first verse, the letter is not addressed merely to Philemon. It's addressed to the church that meets in your house. It's designed to be communicated and surely shared with a wider audience. I wonder if Philemon would have been maybe a little bit embarrassed, frankly, had this letter been read elsewhere. I hope so. It's good to be embarrassed. The second thing is that the issues surrounding slavery were and would increasingly become a matter worthy of bringing to the attention of the entire church. After all, Philemon was not the only Christian in Colossae to own slaves. And how do we know that? And for that, we go to Colossians 4, verses 1 through 4. It's, it says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ 
on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Go to the next section, verses, um, verses 8 through 16. And I have to confess, every time I read this, it gives me chills. And I hope it will for you. Accordingly, Paul continues, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet, for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. A number of things to note here. I'm just going to pick out a few. First of all, I think Paul would not have been good at writing fundraising letters. He's not nearly as obsequious as a typical fundraising letter is. He is not a mere supplicant. Though he is old, though he is imprisoned, though he has no particular status in any community, he speaks to Philemon with the voice of authority. He might command and receive obedience, but he does not play that card. He simply asks. And not only that, but he doesn't even ask for a particular course of action. It's enough that he lays out the matter before Philemon, confident in his relational bond with this man, a fellow soldier in Christ. And there's a number of other things to highlight in the text. First, notice that Paul adds another piece to his resume. He's not only a prisoner, he is old. I once heard it suggested that Paul is in some way pouring it on here that he's manipulating the heartstrings of Philemon by, by calling into account every heart-wrenching detail he can. And that has actually resonated with me over the years and has brought a smile to my face when I have read this little letter. But I don't think that can be the case. The stakes are too high. The young man, Onesimus, might well have been standing there, hat in hand, as the letter is being read. Paul is doing more than asking for a personal favor here, doing more than leveraging whatever sympathy he can draw out of Philemon. He is simply bearing his heart and let the chips fall where they may. In fact, we first see the word heart in verse 12. Paul says that he is 
sending his very heart back to Philemon. He refers to Onesimus as his child and himself as Onesimus' father during Paul's imprisonment. How Paul would have longed to keep Onesimus by his side, to find encouragement and comfort in his assistant, and to see that as a precious gift from Philemon. And yet, it is important to Paul that accounts are square between these two beloved brothers and colleagues as ambassadors for the gospel. Another thing, do you see the similarities between verse 7 and verse 16? In verse 7, Philemon is addressed as a brother to Paul. And here in verse 16, it is Onesimus who is named as brother, as a blessed brother. And he sends him back to Philemon, no longer as a slave, but as something so much more. Paul outlines here the chasm between the slave and what the slave has become. He was useless, but now he is what? He is useful. The relationship Philemon with Onesimus was in the flesh, but now it is a relationship forever in the Lord. And all that remains here really is that Philemon should welcome Onesimus back and of his own will praise the Lord for the mercies of God in this matter. There is no need for compulsion here. This is a moment of allowing a miraculous transformation to take place to see Philemon begin to connect the dots. This will be a transformation in relationship that Paul doesn't need to somehow engineer through literary strategy or pulling strings. It will develop naturally because of the shared mercies of Christ poured out on each of these brothers. I've called this section the mirror of the gospel because Paul is modeling in his relationship with Onesimus the embodiment of the gospel. The love of Paul for this presumably younger brother is tangible. It breathes from the page. And the reckoning that must take place is navigated by Paul to happen in such a way that any guilt of the escaped slave is wiped clean, washed away. Not on the strength of character of Onesimus, but on the love of the spiritual father for the spiritual child. Verses 17 through 25, until we meet again, or blood brothers. So if you consider me your partner, receive him, he's speaking to Philemon again, about Onesimus, receive him as you would receive me, if he has wronged you at all, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me. For I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. How I wish that this letter were longer because I want to know more. So here's a question. If Paul had delivered this letter, how would he have been received, do you think? 
Would the guest room have been made ready? I think so. And much more besides. And here Paul suggests that it would be most fitting to welcome Onesimus back in the same way. Wow. But Paul's not finished. On the off chance that there might remain outstanding a delicate or troublesome matter of some property gone missing, or maybe the books having been cooked by an enterprising slave in a position to benefit, Paul gives Philemon a blank check. Now, Dave Ramsey would be horrified, right? He would call him in for counseling. He would say something like, you know, you better think this through. You are co-signing a note here, and you really have no idea what you're in for here. It's time for cooler heads to prevail, Paul. And again, the story becomes a mirror of the gospel. And I want to tell you a personal story. Probably 30 years ago, um, Kath and I went out to dinner because I had a gift certificate in my billfold that a client had given me three years earlier. It was not a plasticized card. It was a piece of paper with a typed out and a signature at the bottom. And it was a gift certificate. Oh, it was great. And it was to a restaurant called the Mill Race Inn. Now, the Mill Race Inn uh, is no longer there. It was kind of a, let's call it a gently antiquated, probably rat-infested little restaurant on the Fox River. But it had sort of this... Um, elegance about it. In fact, you had to wear a sports coat when you went in if you were a guy and if you didn't have one, that was okay because they had a whole rack you could choose from and put it on as you came in and have your seat. So, we went in and I went up to the hostess at the front desk there and I said, hey, I, just, I need to find out if this, if this gift certificate is still worth anything and I held it out. Now, keep in mind I've had it in my billfold for three years and so she picked it up like it was an old sock and she takes it back to her manager comes back and says, well, yeah, it's, it's good. Come on in. So we did. And it was great. It was really good food, and we ordered an appetizer even, because why not? And we got to the end, and we were pretty well stuffed, and the server wheels out a dessert cart. And I thought, well, this is, we never would do this, but why not? But then it dawned on me, I had no idea what the denomination was for. Was it $10? Was it $30? I had no idea. So I I pulled out the card again and I showed it to the server and I said, um, I'm sort of embarrassed even to ask this question, but can you find out for me what this is, what the denomination on this card is? And so she takes it and goes back to her manager, comes back, she says, well, it's not really a gift certificate. Oh, great. It's a house account. I said, well, what is that? She said, well, it means whatever you order, we bill them and they pay. And it was like, wow. Okay, that kind of puts a whole new light on the day. And did we order dessert even though we were stuffed? Absolutely we did. We ordered dessert. <laughs> but the postscript is that I was mightily embarrassed when the bill came due, which I didn't have to pay. But the bill was for $84, which 30 years ago, that was worth like, I don't know, $300. I have no idea. It was, all I know is it was at least double or triple what we had ever spent for a meal at a restaurant before. But that's the nature of a house account, right? It was, it was going to cover the expense, what 
whatever it is. Folks, we have had a blank check applied to our balance due. It's not a $30 gift card, it's a house account. In the case of Philemon, the sum, however great or small, would count little against the mercies of God poured out in the lives of both of these men. Not only in this world of flesh, but for all eternity. Note the final plea. Refresh my heart in Christ. Paul seeks no other benefit from his wealthy friend. He doesn't ask for a high-powered defense attorney. He doesn't ask that a GoFundMe account be set up. He doesn't ask for strings to be pulled or for special treatment or even for a martyr's honor. He only asks this, that the bonds between brothers be made strong because of the shed blood of Jesus that has washed them both clean. I've got some takeaways, but keep in mind that a takeaway is not the same as a conclusion, so don't get your hopes up. A takeaway is a hopefully useful tool or two that will allow you to, to take it with you, keep it close to hand, and it may be able to help guide you through a day when you will need it. Conclusion is a very different matter. But the first takeaway is this. We see through a glass darkly. Like Paul and any of the characters in this little story, we do not know what the future holds. In fact, even when we look back on the year that has just finished, or just about to, who can say what the impact will be of even the smallest, most seemingly insignificant of conversations? The point is that whether we're looking back at the year past or forward to the new year, we see through a glass darkly. And we have to be okay with that because it's not going to change. Paul spoke with acute confidence about events that he would have no control over at all because his confidence is rooted not in knowing the future, but in knowing who holds the future. To express confidence about a future outcome without any basis is simply hubris. Paul's confidence rests on the proven faithfulness of God over and over, his promised mercies, his faith in the word of God, which he has largely memorized, I suspect, and it was in that good soil that his hope was firmly rooted for the future. The second takeaway is this. Oh, to be of use. Never undersell the gift of being useful. You know what the name Onesimus means? It means useful. I've said it before from this pulpit, to be of use is maybe the most satisfying of all gifts because, and it has little to do with recognition, fleeting fame, honor among men. It has everything to do with the genuine care for a brother or a sister. And it may well, may well be the most reliable measuring stick of our growing maturity in Christ. But there's a danger in being useful. We will always tend in our flesh because we are creatures of dust to rank usefulness according to our own lights. The key here is to understand that the real measuring stick is usefulness to God, not usefulness to Mr. Walker. And that introduces an entirely different metric to the calculation. We used to joke in our family that the spiritual gift that our family had was to fill chairs. That's what we could do. 
We might not be able to do much of anything else, but that was our calling. And although it was said in jest, there was great truth in that statement. And usefulness is not a measure of worth unless it is also a measure of yieldedness to our champion, Jesus Christ. Third takeaway. Be on the lookout for your own blind spots because you surely have them. I do. Philemon surely did. Paul draws comfort from the grace that Philemon exhibits for all the saints. And yet, it seems that Onesimus was invisible to him. He sees Onesimus not for who he is, a minister, minister and emissary of the gospel, a blood brother in Christ, a growing man of increasing usefulness. He sees this presumably younger man whom he no longer really even knows as a slave, as a runaway slave, and as property returned. He had the resources to have manumitted this bondservant and could have sent him with a blessing to minister on his behalf to his own spiritual father, the Apostle Paul. And maybe, in the end, he did that. It's comforting to know that even our blind spots will one day, by the transformative work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, resolve themselves into clarity of vision and renewed, reliable sight. Praise the Lord. But until then, the question remains, who is invisible to you? And who is invisible to me? Where's your blind spot? And where's mine? And now you can breathe easy for a moment because this is the conclusion this morning. Three strikes and you're out with a question mark. Onesimus didn't have two strikes against him. He had three. He was a slave. He was an escaped slave. And he was a returned slave. He was discovered and brought back to his owner, surely not in chains, but he was entirely at the mercy of one whom by the lights of his day he had wronged. But Onesimus had a champion, his spiritual father, the Apostle Paul. Would you find comfort in knowing that you have a champion who will vouch for you, fight for you, who will cover the cost of all your debts, all your mixed bag of broken wear, to borrow Hawthorne's phrase, your envy, your regrets, your bitterness, your little petty schemes, and your innocent and not-so-innocent lies. Brothers and sisters in Christ, amazingly, you do. And we proclaim this champion to one another each Sunday and every day in between. And know this, we have a champion that loves us personally, deeply. How strange and divine I can say Christ is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Further, we have a champion whose word is authoritative and powerful. It does not have to somehow cajole or seek to strategically persuade via guilt or pity or sheer cheekiness, a reluctant judge and jury on our behalf, the word of Jesus Christ, spoken for you and me, attested to by his broken body and attested to by his shed blood and attested to by his triumph over the grave and attested to by his fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit is heard and attended to by the whirling stars of the farthest galaxy. That word spoke the world into existence. 
He has been our champion from before the foundation of the world. And if this is new to you, if you feel like you've never had a champion, if you feel like you've got two strikes, maybe three strikes against you, I ask you to join with us as we march with growing confidence into the new year, yielded and surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ who knows everything about us and yet who loves us still. And may we rest in this, brothers and sisters, that though we have no idea of what 2024 may bring, we know the one who holds the future in the palm of his hand. If you will pray with me, and then if the instrumentalists and the communion servers will come to the front as I do. Father, it's a, it is truly a, a comforting thought to know that one day we will be put into a box and lowered into the ground, not as complete works, but the completion of that work will continue until we can say that we are complete in thee. Father, we thank you for the sweetness and the beauty of your word. It's like a, it's like a chair that will support our weight, but as has been said from this pulpit, it's a chair that we can come to love and appreciate for its exquisite beauty. I pray that we could apply your word into the year ahead, that we would rejoice because we can hold the present with an open hand, knowing that you hold the future in your hand. Father, we thank you that we do not have to live in fear. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of our souls. And it's in his name that we pray.